Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 17 Trucker Tantrum Action Tribute I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel and those eagerly anticipating the DCCU. In this episode, it's the Cassidy Roadhouse and how this scene pays tribute to Action Comics number one. We'll talk about the smashed truck smiles, Clark's sex life, and end this sumptuous smorgasbord with a side of mailbag. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but celebrate a film that will lead us into the DC Cinematic Universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. Oh man, food. Uh, I'm so hungry. <laughs> well, welcome back. It's been a while since our last commentary episode, so let's get right into it. When we last left off, we finished up the flashback where Jonathan reveals the ship to Clark, affirms his sonship, and asks him to hope and strive for a great future. One with answers, one with purpose, and one where he can stand proud before the people of Earth. I just want to quickly revisit that to give credit to the 2010 Superman Secret Origin written by Jeff Johns. I mentioned the cues from Birthright and Earth One, but neglected to credit Johns for inspiring the You Are My Son line. Secret Origin takes many of its cues from the Silver Age and the 1978 film, so it often tends to slip my mind in terms of analyzing modern takes on Superman. Nonetheless, the inspiration for that line definitely deserves recognition. So we know Jor-El has rested his hopes and his dreams on Kal-El. We've seen that Clark is driven to rescue people despite the personal cost. However, we've also seen Clark's difficulties growing up. At this point in the film, we already know that Clark isn't living out the promise that Jorel or Jonathan had hoped for him. Clark knows that he wasn't shot across the stars to bait cages or bust tables, but he doesn't know what he is, why he's different, or why he's here. We've already seen that Clark saves men on the oil rig even after Jonathan's admonishments that he must maintain his secret. So we're left wondering what, if anything, changed between then and now where Clark is continuing to save people yet forced to walk away afterwards. The flashback with Jonathan gives us context for why Clark is bussing tables at Cassidy's and not trying to collect his paycheck and belongings from the Debbie Sioux. And let's just quickly pause to point out that the movie novelization location is the Bearcat Bar near Yellowknife. There are always going to be incongruities between the source material and adapted works. So bear that in mind before relying on such things as definitive proof rather than mere persuasion. Okay, so in present day, we see Ludlow's truck pull in. The scene is just about two minutes. So I'm going to play the audio and refresh your memory. Be here for the exercise? No, the change in the plans. 
guess somebody found something strange on Ellesmere. Air comms were making runs out there all week. That rat hole, you gotta be kidding me. I know, it's crazy, right? But the Americans are there too, lots of them. Anything They're else? calling it an anomalous object, whatever that means. Back off, Leto, I'm serious. Oh, come on, Chrissy. Knock it off. Sit down. Let me go. Hey, leave her alone, man. Or what, tough guy? Or, gonna have to ask you to leave. I think I'll probably just leave when I'm good and ready. Ooh. <laughs> There he is. It's not worth it, sweetie. Hey, asshole, don't forget your tip. <laughs> Steve Rack. Here, Alison Crowe's rendition of Ring of Fire, popularized by Johnny Cash. As far as I'm aware, this is the only source music that is diegetic music that the people within the film itself can hear, as opposed to the score or the soundtrack that the audience hears in the film. There may be good reason for that, but we'll get to that later. I did a little digging into Ring of Fire, but I couldn't find any significance, meaning, or symbolism for its use here. It may simply be a cool song. Of course, let me know if you have any thoughts about why Ring of Fire was chosen. That said, let's listen to Zack Snyder and Alison Crowe's behind-the-scene thoughts about this scene. Okay, I'm back to talk a little bit about Alison Crowe and the scene in the uh, bar. One of the things that sort of establishes the scene is this music this, um, that Alison is performing. And uh, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan, and I'm a big Alison Crowe fan, so the combination to me seemed like an awesome opportunity if we could make it happen. And Alison and I had talked about trying to get uh, some of her music in one of my movies whenever we could. And I thought, well, if I just put her in the film, then there's no way that it won't work. So uh, that's where you get Alison from. Well, he keeps trying to, to get me into movies and it's, it's amazing. And I first kind of met Zach over the internet about songs online and things like that. But I think about four or five years ago, the first one uh, would have been The Watchmen, and he was looking to do Hallelujah. And then the second one, um, we were looking at another song for a sucker punch. And so now we have Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire, and a altercation ensues. There's a there's a fight. So yeah, it kind of kind of fits perfectly. So even though you're singing the lyric, it, you see something about to happen. Yeah, yeah. The music forms a backdrop to this little scene where Henry and Ian Tracy kind of face off. And Henry did have to put up with a lot, getting beer poured on him, getting a beer can thrown at him, all that stuff. So uh, it's not easy being Superman all the time. But, you know, the character Ludlow will get his comeuppance. 
we see Clark bussing tables, and clearly he's not a Puritan. Clark's not above working at an establishment that serves alcohol. Clark gives the waitress Chrissy a smile, and she smiles back. Incidentally, I didn't use this and other smiles in the film in the Man of Steel mini-myths episode, mostly to match the timing of Lily Allen's chorus. There are plenty of smiles, joy, and humor in Man of Steel. But since the latter is subjective and often requires setup or explanation, it isn't really easily communicated in my short video series, but it might be the kind of topic that we cover in a future podcast when we have more room for discussion. Anyways, this little exchange and a later line have made some wonder whether the two are involved. We'll discuss that later. But incidentally, only 20 seconds have passed in the film and we have already talked this much. This film is so tightly packed and that's why it's easy to miss the fact that the Canadian servicemen mention Ellesmere Island. And that's why Clark heads there next. In an earlier draft of my notes, I had a extensive segment on Canadian joint operations and U.S. military involvement in scientific and archaeological endeavors, but as I started yawning reading it, I have mercifully decided to cut it. Maybe it will see the light of day as a blog post someday, but for now, the short version is that Man of Steel is on point and clearly had military consultants helping the film to be and feel authentic. So even as the soldiers talk, the conflict with the semi-driver, Ludlow, is brewing. But before we analyze the scene within the reality of the story, let's take a step back to see it as the tribute that it is. I'm a little surprised that I haven't seen anyone else make this connection, so maybe it's only in my head, but hear me out and you be the judge. But to me, the Roadhouse scene is a clear homage to Action Comics number one. Let's talk about the parallels. If you've never read Action Comics number one, you might be surprised to know that it's over 60 pages long, but only 13 of them are dedicated to Superman. And in fact, each panel is numbered, so we know the entire story is told in just under 100 panels. If you want to read Action Comics number one for yourself, CGC has published a high quality scan of their grade 9.0 copy, which sold for over $3.2 million. Now, longtime Superman fans will be familiar with the cover where Superman smashes a green car, a 1937 Chrysler DeSoto touring sedan to be exact, which has been parodied, remade, referenced, and paid homage to a countless number of times. In Superman Returns, they put Superman into that pose hitting the reference squarely on the nose. However, Man of Steel was far more subtle in its approach. First, in terms of parallel promotion, that smashed car being on the cover is our first impression of Superman. For Man of Steel, the smashed truck was one of the first looks into the film, published on or about January 12, 2012. The cover references only one of four stories in Superman's section, starting with panel 46, where Clark makes eyes at Lois, asks her out, and she agrees on a whim. This is perhaps like the exchange of smiles between Clark and Chrissy. So in panel 47, they're at a roadhouse where there's music playing and the drinks are flowing. In Man of Steel, Cassidy's is a roadhouse where Alison Crow is playing music and the patrons are well lubricated. In panel 48, three tough guys sit at a table and only the bully is given a name, Butch. This is like Ludlow being the only named bully at a table of three. 
In panel 50, Butch forcefully demands that Lois dance with him, saying, you'll dance with me and like it. This is like Ludlow trying to force Chrissy to sit down. Panel 51, Lois rebuffs Butch with a slap, just like Chrissy slaps away Ludlow's hand. Both Lois and Chrissy say, let me go. Panel 52, Butch tries to provoke Clark by insulting him, telling him to fight, and pushing Clark in the face. Man of Steel mirrors this with Ludlow's insults and provocations, like pushing him, throwing beer in his face, and hitting him with a beer can to the back. In action, the narration says, reluctantly, Kent adheres to his role of weakling. In Man of Steel, Clark also reluctantly has to swallow his pride. After everyone has left the roadhouse in panel 66, Superman ensures that no one is in the green car, and then in panel 67, Superman gets his revenge, smashes Butch's car into the rock, as we've seen on the comics cover. In panels 70 and 71, Superman hangs Butch up on a utility pole as a final punishment. In the film, Clark leaves the roadhouse and, without hurting anyone, smashes Ludlow's truck and leaves it propped up on lumber, often used, as you guessed it, utility poles. Maybe it's all mere coincidence, or I'm reaching, but I think there are enough parallels to at least entertain the possibility. If you believe it's a tribute, you can cast aside any doubts about the layers of intentionality or sheer brilliance of this film. We were given such a subversive, yet faithful, homage built into the film that went right over everyone's head. The homage in Returns is a nice and obvious nod, but it tends to take you out of the film by causing you to explicitly recall that cover to Action 1 is a real thing in the real world, reminding you that what you're watching isn't real. However, Man of Steel takes that same source material to use as inspiration for deftly crafting a scene so authentic that everyone is focused on the reality of the scene rather than the homage or meta-commentary that it represents. You're never taken out of the film or the scene by that extra layer of meaning. If there's any fault with the scene, it's that the homage is too subtle, so no one got it. But let me know if you think this is more likely than not, or if I've gone off the deep end. I'll probably put together a video soon so that you can judge for yourself and let me know. Now, if you do take it as a tribute, then some of the structure of the events makes more sense in terms of challenging the reality of the situation. Clark overhears Chrissy fending off Ludlow's advances. Ludlow gropes at her, which is enough to sustain a charge of sexual assault under the Criminal Code of Canada, sections 265 and 271. Grabbing her wrist could also sustain another charge, but thankfully, Clark steps in. Chrissy was unfortunately a victim of the bystander effect, or bystander apathy, which is a sociological phenomenon where bystanders fail to offer help to a victim when other people are present. Sadly, the more people standing around, the less likely the victim is to receive help because of the diffusion of responsibility. Obviously, I'm greatly simplifying this heavily studied and observed phenomenon, but basically, if none of the other patrons, people at or behind the bar or playing pool, move, no one will except for Clark. It would have been easy for Clark to act like everyone else, to turn a blind eye, let her get molested, and preserve his anonymity. But as Lois later points out, not helping people is not an option for him. Clark steps up. He has to protect a person in need, even if it's at his expense. Now, admittedly, it was done in a way that could precipitate conflict. Clark might have gone over there and then, accidentally, spilled his bus tub all over Ludlow. However, the way Clark tackles this gives us insight into his character. Clark is forthright and direct, 
like his father who raised him and plays no games. On one hand, being confronted so directly in front of his peers would tend to push someone like Ludlow into fighting. On the other hand, by confronting him directly, Clark has taken Ludlow's attention away from Chrissy and put it entirely on himself. And if Clark is to have any future here, he needs Ludlow to know clearly what the terms are. Clark won't always be there to rescue Chrissy by feigning accident, so confronting Ludlow makes sense. However, let's not pretend that the fight is Clark's fault. It may sting his pride, but Ludlow could back down and apologize, and that would be that. Instead, Ludlow leaps to his feet and escalates. Or what, tough guy? And again, from here, Clark could have defused the situation too, but not without compromising his goals and his character. He didn't just want Ludlow to stop sexually harassing Chrissy now, and this time, he wanted Ludlow to stop for good. And if that meant calling out Ludlow's behavior, however embarrassing it was for Ludlow, that's what he'll do. Clark stands his ground. Ludlow throws his beer into Clark's face, triggering an indictable charge for assault. The crowd that refused to help Chrissy is now amused at Clark's humiliation. This injustice is what Clark gets for trying to do what's right. Something in Clark is mad, and Ludlow sees it. Oh, there he is, mockingly. He then throws his full body into pushing Clark over, but bounces off completely ineffectively. For those who say that there are no jokes in Man of Steel, I can say that in my viewings, the look on their faces, Ludlow's and Clark's, has almost always gotten laughs from the audience. Now, incidentally, one wonders what Ludlow was hoping to accomplish had he managed to push Clark down or provoke him into fighting. Clark's half a foot taller, 20 years younger, and even without superpowers, that is a terrible one-on-one -on -one matchup for Ludlow. And I don't think we really need to explain this. Ludlow is dumb, and perhaps drunk. Maybe he thought his friends would have his back, but it's much more likely he wasn't thinking, period. He's already racked up multiple counts of indictable charges if the busboy he was bullying wanted to press charges, so he isn't a terribly thoughtful kind of guy. Of course, human nature would be to strike back. Chrissy knows this, and she implores Clark to back down, and he does. Clark turns the other cheek insofar as this exchange is concerned, and he starts to walk away. Ludlow, pressing his luck, pitches a can into Clark's back. Clark pauses for a moment, then continues his exit out the door. I kind of believe that if Ludlow hadn't pitched that can, he might still have a truck. This is one of those points where so much is conveyed in the performance. We know that Clark has the power to humble Ludlow right then and there, but painted on Clark's face is that disappointment and frustration of having to eat this indignity. Clark still values his secret, and he can't afford the escalation and the inquiry that roughing up Ludlow a little might bring. Additionally, in the novelization and from accounts that we have on set for dialogue shot but not in the final cut of the film, we know that Ludlow being a steady customer gets preference over a busboy and Clark is fired. In the film, we can assume that Clark more or less quits the instant he walks out that door during his shift. So as a non-employee, even if he has the power, he lacks the authority to throw Ludlow out. It's something that we'll revisit eventually, but the distinction between having the power to do something and the authority to do something is often raised by the Superman mythos, and here Clark honors his lack of authority within the bar. Of course, then he steps outside. But before we go outside with Clark, let's listen to Ian Tracy talk about playing Ludlow. Playing a jerk is, uh, it, it has its, its uh, good sides. Everything that you've felt like saying and doing to people in the past or in your life when you, when you control yourself, you can ball it up into one little moment of fury and 
sarcasm. It's it's good. It, uh, you know, when when you if you're playing good guys, you have to make everybody like you. If you're bad guy, you don't have to care. This dude who broke my truck, he did a really good job. Uh, as you can see, it's jackknifed in an unusual position. I think uh, I might have to watch what I say to people from now on. Otherwise, my toys will be broken. And uh, what can I say? Lesson learned. Thanks, Superman. So before joining Clark outside, let's take a moment to talk about the line where Chrissy says, it's not worth it, sweetie. So I mentioned before that the exchange of smiles and the fact that Chrissy calls Clark sweetie has led some to believe that the two are involved romantically one way or another. I'm skeptical for a few reasons. First, sweetie does not necessarily have to be a romantic term of endearment. According to the American Dialect Society, in the American South and parts of Canada, speakers will routinely sprinkle sweetie, honey, sweetheart, and darling into conversations with strangers in a platonic manner. A small point of distinction, Southerners will also say sugar, but most Canadians will not. Second, to the extent that it is a term of endearment, remember that it can be used maternally. When Martha rushes to Clark's rescue at the elementary school, she calls him sweetie. Third, as part of the montage where Lois is retracing Clark's journey, Chrissy says he worked here for a few minutes. Now, even if she doesn't mean literally, it's clear that Clark wasn't there long. Fourth, it may simply be a writer's trick to keep Clark's name ambiguous. Remember, he was called Greenhorn on the Debbie Sue, and here he's being called Sweetie at Cassidy's, and later he'll be called Joe at Ellesmere. Rather than hit the audience with a flood of irrelevant fake names, they carefully scripted around the issue. Fifth, and finally, I don't really see Clark as a love-him-and-leave-him Lothario, cruising Cafanova, drifting Don Juan or roaming Romeo, wandering wherever he wills, breaking hearts. However, it's ambiguous, and if you like the idea of a hunky heartthrob walking the earth to find love, you might not be entirely off base. In a May 22nd, 2013 interview with the New York Times, Zack Snyder said, quote, We assume that Clark is not a virgin. I do. You don't see that, but that's the assumption. End quote. Of course, it's ambiguous on film, so you're free to interpret it as you will. At the very least, Clark doesn't seem uncomfortable around the fair sex. Another way that this little exchange of smiles might be taken as a signal that Clark is considered attractive in this universe. It sounds stupid that I need to say that, but let's not take it for granted. In some Superman traditions, Clark is perceived to be ordinary or unattractive, and we need to be told that, going so far that when witnesses are asked to describe Clark Kent to a police sketch artist, the artist's rendition is markedly different than Superman. It's a trope not just confined to Superman. You've got Pfeiffer in Batman Returns, McGuire in Spider-Man, Sheedy in The Breakfast Club, and of course, Rachel Lee Cook in She's All That. These are all films where the story has to lampshade the fact that these movie stars are already quite attractive, even if, in story, they need a makeover for it to become apparent in their world. It's a small thing, but it's another point that shows that this film tries not to rely on reality-defying tropes like that. So finally, we get to the sight gag and conclusion of this scene where Ludlow leaves the bar and does a double take at his semi propped up on lumber. This was probably one of the most reliable laughs in the theater, and I almost wish it hadn't been spoiled by the trailers to surprise and delight even more. But it's effective on multiple levels to characterize Clark, to show that there's injustice in the world, and to provide a clue to move Clark to Ellesmere. And, of course, as a bit of humor. 
The speed of the scene means that it isn't meant to be overanalyzed, but that's this show's bread and butter. So for me, this is one of those scenes where the logistics are a little tough to pin down. I'm probably about 80% there and then willing to let that last bit go. First, we have the timing. When Clark leaves the roadhouse, it is daylight. And by the time Ludlow leaves, it has become dark. When Ludlow leaves, he's surprised by his truck, the way anyone seeing an elevated truck would be. That suggests that Ludlow is the first person to leave the bar after Clark because anyone else would have run back into the bar to tell everyone about the angry modern art erected in the parking lot. It also suggests that no one has passed by or come to the bar since Clark left, since they too would share what they saw. Now, to be clear, this isn't a plot hole. Nothing within the world or logic excludes the possibility that Ludlow is the next person to leave after Clark. However, it is a plot convenience. The event becomes more unlikely or more convenient the longer the period between Clark and Ludlow's departures, while the change in daylight would tend to imply a length of time depending on the time of year night can fall quickly. Although business seemed pretty good, they all could be relatively regular steady customers, meaning that the bar doesn't usually expect passerbys or walk-ins. And lastly, perhaps the patrons are there specifically for the live entertainment and music, and not about to leave unless and until Alison Crowe finishes her performance, which could explain everyone staying in together. And that leads us into the second question. We have the issue of noise. Part of the reason Clark doesn't flatten Ludlow right then and there is to preserve his secret. Obviously, taking out his frustrations on Ludlow's truck would be a catastrophe if Clark was caught doing it. But here's the thing. Smashing logs into and through asphalt and metal takes tremendous force, which is going to tend to be loud. The jackknifed truck is a sculpture of impulsive rage, not premeditated design. I don't think Clark slowly and carefully crafted pilot holes with his heat vision and then slowly pushed the logs into place to avoid a racket. No, it's apparent that he did it right then and there in the parking lot and in a fit. So why didn't the patrons of the bar hear Clark smashing up the truck and come out running? And this is why Allison's performance being source music is actually important to the logistics of this scene. According to Allison Crowe's manager, Adrian Duplessis, who was present for the shooting of the scene in question. After Clark is fired and walks out, Allison breaks the tension by resuming her musical performance and quote, indeed things get really rocking. The denizens inside Cassidy's are rowdy and this provides plenty of cover for Clark to prepare his surprise for Ludlow, end quote. So we've got the where and when and we'll discuss the why in a bit and most of the how, but not all of it. With the powers that Clark has then and at that stage, I'm not really sure how he could build that surprise without careful crafting. And this is the brilliance of film and comics and the tools that are made available to the storytellers by using jumps in narrative, unseen moments between panels, and cuts in editing. Most of the audience will probably only roughly fill in the blanks with their imagination for the desired effect, but trying to recreate this moment with an unblinking stare is gonna be tough. This might be hard for you to intuit because we're so used to using shorthand with superhero mechanics, but imagine if the same objects were before you in the same size and scale, but all made of, I don't know, say soda crackers. You may well have the strength to lift and manipulate these cracker logs or the truck to a degree, 
but you wouldn't have the size or freedom of movement to manipulate these far weaker materials into place at the speeds and the force that you want to. As we discussed back in episode 4, if Clark can impart some of his strength to the objects that he's carrying, that could mitigate the issues without the wood tearing apart in his hands before he can drive it into the ground or through the truck. However, there's still the issue of scale. Given the angle of the two logs, the choreography would have to go something like this. Clark drives one log into the ground first, then he lifts the front of the truck up and over the full height of the log to impale it on the first log. Then he drives the second log onto the top of the truck from above. All fine and good if you can fly, but a little tougher to pull off from the ground. And again, it's not really an issue in the medium that we're talking about. In Action Comics number one, Superman shakes all the passengers out of the green sedan harmlessly, but without really questioning the logistics of that. In Superman Returns, the logistics of Superman getting under Kitty Kowalski's car is glossed over. So here too, in that tradition, for this moment, it's more about the end result than the logistics of getting there. But if you absolutely need a way to do it without flight, I think this is how you choreograph it without making it overly premeditated. I think Clark first knocks the truck over onto its right side, which never faces the camera in the film, so you can't see the damage of it being turned over, and then he drives the log into the truck while it's on its side, mitigating the issues of height. Then he pushes the truck back up onto the logs to be propped up as a surprise for Ludlow. <laughs> Obviously, it's nuts that I spent so much time trying to reason this out, but it's only because this film is so starkly logical and consistent that when something isn't, it takes me a little more time to accept it as something that is just like every other movie and story not held to the same level of scrutiny or rigid reality. The fact is, is most films take much larger leaps in logic and more generous liberties with their realities, especially for something primarily meant as that kind of visual punctuation which we can attribute to Snyder. You know that Superman arising from a crumpled bank vault or Zod swinging the I-beam or a flying train were all the visual exclamation marks that he dreamed of bringing to screen and to have in the film. And I believe this shot of the propped up truck was one such image. All the logistics were properly excluded from the film because this joke and tribute is all executed better with a properly timed punchline rather than worrying about spoon feeding all the logistics in between. And like I said before, for most of the audience, it was a crowd pleaser. However, for detractors, upon reflection, they found that there was nothing to laugh about. Essentially, the issue for them is Clark's morality and whether he went too far. Some are so openly hostile to Man of Steel and ready to pounce on any of Clark's moral failings as if the film did not intend for them to be shown. These critics suddenly find in their hearts a well of empathy and compassion for poor Ludlow. Ludlow, whose only sin was to get a little tipsy, now has his entire livelihood destroyed for a moment of indiscretion. The price of a semi-truck can range anywhere from $150,000 to $300,000. The value of the lumber could be estimated to be roughly around $2,500. All Ludlow wanted was some relief from the road, to relax with his fellow loggers while listening to some music, but now he's a quarter million dollars in the hole because Man of Steel's Superman is an angry psychopath. <laughs> it's a little crazy the level of disdain for Man of Steel would cause such warmth 
for a molester guilty of assault, and one wonders why they couldn't spare a little of that sympathy for Clark to understand and empathize with his motivations. But to be fair, there is some merit to their points that are worth exploring, discussing, and answering. I've heard it said that Clark was intending to do the world a favor, that Ludlow is clearly drunk and a danger to himself and anyone else on the road. So Clark acted for the protection of everyone. Well, that might be a nice side effect, but I don't think that's the right interpretation. First, whether Ludlow was drunk or not isn't actually crystal clear in the film. Canada does have dram shop liability, also known as host or liquor liability, which means that an establishment can be liable for the subsequent damages if it furnished alcohol to somebody noticeably intoxicated and knew that person was going to drive a motor vehicle. So maybe Ludlow was cut off so that he could sober up, but maybe not since people were publicly assaulted in this place. In the behind the scenes footage, we're shown Ludlow stumbling inside the bar as he leaves. So at least one take indicates that he was drunk. But since that take didn't make the film, we ultimately don't know for a fact that Ludlow was inebriated. Second, I do think that the trashed truck was an expression of Clark's very understandable and realistic frustration. If Clark was merely looking out for everyone else, he might have taken less drastic but no less effective measures, like lancing Ludlow's tires with heat vision or maybe just letting the air out. Or if he wanted to be playful without being as destructive, he could have turned the truck onto its side, rendering it undrivable until righted. Now, it's not relevant here, but definitely will be as we put the characters under a microscope in the future, but note that the existence of an alternative does not mean that the person is acting unreasonable if they don't take that alternative. In law, when we're asked to evaluate the reasonability of a person or their actions, it is not required that they take the optimal or best course of action because the typical person with ordinary prudence still doesn't do everything perfectly. But we do consider particular circumstances even if we do not take into account the specific abilities of the defendant or tortfeasor. But I digress. These alternatives are not dispositive, but they are persuasive in showing that Clark probably wasn't acting prudently. Okay, so he wasn't prudent, but was he out of line? Sure, of course he was. Smashing things in anger wasn't why Jor-El sent him to Earth. Taking revenge isn't something that would let him stand proud before the human race one day, and the risks he took in making and presenting his paranormal piece would have worried Jonathan, fearing that his son would get caught. So it was out of line, but it's not unsympathetic. Pathetic. Clark isn't Superman yet. He doesn't know what the expectations are for him yet and what he will mean to the world. That distinguishes this scene from the revenge taken on the bully in Superman 2. Jonathan's lessons and promises from the barn at this point are two decades ago. Clark has carried the unanswered questions that Jonathan had 50% longer than Jonathan did. In nine years, he would be as old as his father was back then and no closer to his answers. Is it any wonder that Clark is frustrated? Is it any wonder that Jonathan's calls for care are cracking decades after the fact. You may have heard that hope deferred makes the heart sick. In Kingdom Come, after a lifetime of experience and doing good, a trauma sent Superman into exile for 10 years, and he came back compromised, darker, and willing to met out punishment. Here, Clark doesn't even have a fraction of Superman's experience, and he has been patiently waiting twice as long. 20 years to see a glimmer of hope for the promises Jonathan made of finding answers, his purpose, and to be proudly presented to the world unashamed. 
if 10 years eroded the heart of a seasoned Superman, how is it fair to hold a still-searching Clark to a higher standard after 20 years of seeking? Even in this failing, our Clark shows monumental patience and character against circumstances which would crush most hearts. So yes, Clark in part takes his frustrations out on Ludlow, but only Ludlow specifically. The film is careful not to cast all truck drivers as jerks, as Clark depends on the kindness of truckers later in the film. Ludlow receives a form of poetic justice, but let's look at the punishment to see if justice was served. There are many theories of sentencing, but the common ones can be remembered with the mnemonic R. That is, incapacitation, deterrence, denunciation, rehabilitation, reparation, and retribution. We can see that many of these don't apply, primarily because Ludlow doesn't know that his truck was destroyed by the busboy that he bullied before. We're left mainly with incapacitation, which is leaving the offender incapable of future offense, and retribution, the moral acceptance of proportionate punishment to satisfy society and the aggrieved. We've already discussed incapacitation, and it's true that this incident will probably keep Ludlow off the road for a while, but it would seem that the main punishment is retribution, which seems right. Some will think that the punishment is not proportionate to the crime. However, looking at Canada's sentencing guidelines, I believe Ludlow got off lightly. If Clark had been someone able and willing to press charges, Ludlow was facing as much as five years in prison for each count of assault run concurrently as opposed to consecutively. Touching over the clothes would likely land him about six months in jail with probation. However, the grabbing of Chrissy's arm, the violent shove to Clark, the splashing of the beer, and the throwing of the beer can would almost certainly attract a jail sentence. The law is especially interested in deterring random acts of violence upon strangers, whereas provoked or initially consensual fights may frequently allow for discharge, diversionary treatment, or probation. In determining Ludlow's sentence, he trips several of the key aggravating factors. He was intoxicated at the time, he showed no remorse, he degraded the victim, and I've seen prosecutors successfully stretch thrown items into the use of weapons as an aggravating factor for the purposes of sentencing. If this hot-headed Ludlow has priors, he could be going away for quite some time, and he would completely lose his livelihood. While being a felon doesn't prevent you from obtaining or keeping a commercial driver's license, most trucking companies will not hire a felon until at least five years has passed from the completion of all sentencing provisions. Moreover, felons can't cross the Canadian border easily or be cleared to haul hazardous materials. In this light, Ludlow was let off easy only having to sort out some insurance issues with his employer. And in fact, Clark's impossible presentation diffuses Ludlow's responsibility for the destruction. Since no one could possibly do that to a truck, it couldn't be Ludlow's fault. That brings Ludlow's punishment down into the range of what you might expect if he were to accept a plea deal for his crimes. So, despite Clark's rage, it's actually remarkably in line with what we'd expect the proper punishment for Ludlow to be. Of course, there might still be some discomfort with the idea that Ludlow was robbed of his due process, that had he been taken to court, the state may have failed to meet its burden, Ludlow's friends might have lied on his behalf, and he would have gotten off scot-free. That's all certainly true, but has Superman always been preoccupied with due process or even proportionality for that matter? Is Superman flawless and without fault? 
the ones who are really upset with this scene tend to say, Superman would never do this. Perhaps. We've already pointed out that Clark isn't Superman yet. However, I suspect the standard that Clark is being held to is more a figment of their imagination than reality. I'd challenge the idea that Superman is always even-handed throughout tradition. Superman's had a long history, but it wasn't hard for me to pick, from memory, examples from every era, from exemplars of the mythos, and from major media where Superman is more exuberant than equitable. In the Golden Age, Superman bullied bullies. He threatened lobbyists, wife-beaters, bankers, and more. In the Silver Age, Superman's so-called superdickery has become infamous, albeit somewhat unfairly, but still hardly a paragon of virtue and values if viewed objectively. In the 1986 Modern Age Man of Steel reboot, before Clark becomes Superman, Pa Kent expresses his disappointment at Clark for showboating and making others feel useless. Then as Superman, he hangs a purse snatcher from a lamppost. No due process or proportionality there. In Birthright, Superman terrorizes a negligent gun shop owner by firing a gun at him and then catching the bullet. In the New 52, Grant Morrison's t-shirt-wearing Superman terrorizes a businessman by throwing him off his balcony in a tribute to the action comics of the 1930s. These examples aren't confined to continuity. In All-Star, Superman breaks the arms of Samson and Hercules unnecessarily. In Secret Identity, Superman stacks the cars of competing journalists and swaps secure nuclear missiles to prove a point. Red Sun lobotomizes detractors, and in For All Seasons, Clark eavesdrops on his parents and never tells them that he can hear them. And in Kingdom Come, it's join up or be incarcerated. And then, enraged, Superman endeavors to kill the powerless delegates of the United Nations as punishment until he's talked out of it. Then there's all the examples from the movies, Smallville, Lois and Clark, the animated series, and so on. It's certainly fair to have expectations of Superman and to hold him to some sort of standard. However, it's unfair to expect others to join you in feeling entitled to your expectations if they're divorced from the tradition of what we've read in the comics or seen on screen. There's a Superman for everyone, and not every Superman has to be yours. If you can broaden your horizons and tastes, you can enjoy the great buffet of Superman through the ages. But if you're a picky eater, there's probably still a slice of pie for you. And while most love pie too, don't expect everyone to only want pie. We get that you have a preference. No need to spoil everyone else's meal. Over 75 years, we've been blessed with a ton of different flavors to try, so no need to stick to just one cuisine. And all these food metaphors are courtesy of me skipping meals to work. I don't think I've eaten in 36 hours, so let's get this wrapped up so I can eat. Um, now, perhaps part of the reason that it wasn't hard to recall common examples across Superman portrayals through the ages is because, maybe, part of the appeal of Superman is that benevolent power fantasy. It's part of the reason that there's a certain level of preoccupation with Superman punching things. Generally, we want Superman to punch things and not just passively sit with his hands folded, never using his powers. Obviously, it isn't all or nothing. Wanting Superman to show some discretion or moral values doesn't mean you're demanding a flawless paragon. But by the same token, a human failing or a foible doesn't suddenly turn Superman demonic or into a complete betrayal of the character, as some try to suggest. It's a spectrum, and along the spectrum of Superman's long history, Man of Steel is not far afield from where the character has been before, especially at this stage in his life. 
If we're petty enough to pull out a ledger and count Clark's sins to this point, legalistically weighing the good and bad on the cartoon scales of justice, Clark has inadvertently burned an elementary school teacher's hand a bit, he stole a disguise, and now he's proportionately, but without due process, punished a molester and violent bully. On the other hand, he's rescued the lives of men on the oil rig, he saved the children on the bus, and he stepped in to protect Chrissy all at his own expense, and all before he knows his greater destiny. And to me, that's pretty good. In fact, it's downright heroic for anyone that's not being held to the standard of a saint or some mythical version of Superman that tends to be an outlier along the spectrum of history rather than the rule. No doubt, the icon looms large and is epic in scope, impact, and inspiration. But when we stop trying to impose the icon on the character and actually look at the portrayal of the character in media, the rule is that Superman is a hero, but one who operates outside the ordinary rules of law and due process, as we briefly discussed in episode 13. And that's part of the appeal of Superman, that Nietzschean power fantasy of enforcing justice and righteousness in the world as one sees fit, without necessarily needing paperwork, warrants, judges, or juries. Maybe. In a future episode where we talk about the casting of Man of Steel, I'm sure we'll mention the coincidence that Superman's two dads both played Robin Hood on film. Robin Hood, like Superman, is a legendary hero of natural law, representing some sense of justice that exists outside and above the letter of the law as transcribed by men. This is in contrast to the idea of positive law, which says that there is no natural law and that right and wrong only exists because man says it does. These are gross oversimplifications, and we could debate the philosophies of positive versus natural law, but that's not this podcast. The point is that there is something compelling about defying the law in the name of justice for Robin Hood's legend to have lasted 400 years. And that aspect or edge is found throughout the tradition and mythos of Superman. It's why his legend has gone on nearly a century, and as we'll hear secondhand from one of the composers of Batman v Superman, it's something that director Zack Snyder is well aware of, the scope of Superman and these other legends. This is a Collider interview published March 11th with Junkie XL, the composer collaborating with Hans Zimmer on Batman v Superman. I love uh, the Man of Steel soundtrack. I've listened to it like a thousand times. Um, For you, were you a fan of superheroes growing up? What did it mean to be a part of that, working on that soundtrack with Hans? Uh, I mean, it meant a lot. And um, comics have been a major part of uh, of of my life. I would, I shouldn't say this, but I would do those movies for free, you know. I've heard that from other people. Yeah, but, yeah. but you know, what's interesting is that um, um, Hans and I met Zach uh, last week, and he said something um, in general about these uh, superhero movies, which I can very much uh, relate to based, based on Man of Steel. You know, all these heroes, whether it's like, I mean, Tarzan we haven't seen for a while, but you know. He's about to be back. Yeah, uh, Tarzan. Uh, Peter Pan, um, Cinderella, um, the Batman, uh, Spider-Man, uh, Superman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, um, all these characters are bigger than all the directors that ever dealt with them, are bigger than all the uh, uh, cartoonists that drew them, are bigger than any composer that would ever work on them. 
Batman will be around in 100 years, Superman will be around in 150 years. It's, it's such a cultural thing. So the only thing that you can, you know, when you work on a movie on Man of Steel, in 10 years somebody else is going to do the music for Man of Steel. And a different director will be doing Man of Steel. That's the reality. So the only thing that you can do when, when you're in it is to give it not only your best, but your vision on what this character is when you become one with that character. Now what you always will see that because these characters are bigger than ourselves, that everybody that reads the comics, like yourself, you're a big fan of, of, of Man of Steel. Yeah. So whatever Zack's vision was of Man of Steel and Hans's vision of the score matched completely what you were hoping for and what really hits your stomach and your soul like, oh, that is my Man of Steel. But then there are other people that say, oh, I wish Man of Steel was a little bit like this. Right? And then if another director takes over, maybe they like what, what they did. I mean, there are people that loved um, the, you know, the, uh, the, the Batman with George Clooney and with uh, Val Kilmer. It wasn't my cup of tea, you right. know, but I mean, and, and, and that's the same with, with, with music, you know, it, it, it's, uh, um, I mean, all these movies get reboots because the theme of the movie or what the movie's about is bigger than what we are, you know, I mean, all these themes of these movies, all these characters are bigger than what we are, and, and these are not necessarily my words, but this is how Zach explained it, you know, his vision on, on these comics, and, and I, I thought he was really right, it really resonated with me when he said that. You can check out the full 45-minute interview at Collider for more insight into the composer's process and mindset. There's certainly a story behind JXL's nickname, but that's not this podcast. What Snyder said there, he said many times before, as a filmmaker, he has to follow his own vision and inspiration and not try to be beholden to the expectations of a vast and disparate audience, all with their own opinions, takes, and tastes. I love that they get that, and rather than try to homogenize it all into something safe, bland, and ultimately unsatisfying, they're daring to push the limits, to plot a course, pick a vision, and know that it will delight some, but not everyone. It's like that Aesop's fable about bringing the donkey to market. You can't hope to please everyone, and the loud complaints of some doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. Understanding the endurance of the icon also means that you can dare to experiment and try something fresh because in the long run, it all evens out. What resonates with the culture gets adopted into the mythos, and what doesn't fades into the fabric of time. The core always stands the test of time, so worrying over differences in taste or tone is stressing out over nothing. First world problems of the highest order to be preoccupied by the moral disposition of a fictional character in a single work with a legend built to span centuries. But if you're my target audience, you know all this already. You had the open mind and the open heart to let a different take on Superman into your life. I raise this not as an argument against them. Rather, I'm raising it to give us perspective and empathy for those who ironically take a serious take on Superman too seriously for their own good. Hey look, they care. They care passionately, deeply, and sincerely. They love Superman too. They're just picky eaters. Maybe a little noisy, maybe a lot of unfounded criticism attempting to prop up their preferences, but we should have compassion for them rather than provoking a fight. The fact is, we're getting to eat a delicious feast, 
expected to run five years at least. And if they're going to stay picky, left only with the bones of the past, it's understandable that they're grumpy and more than a little bitter. What I'd like to see is for Man of Steel fans as the ones who represent optimism, the hope for the future, and the good character that Superman is known for. Because we're in the position to do that and to be that for the Superman mythos and those fans who might feel left out right now. To show that the ideals, imagination, and optimism can be inspired by Man of Steel and isn't exclusive to their take. Of course, that's just my hope and my belief in a better tomorrow, not something that I'm going to impose upon others. You can only invite people to the table, you can't make them eat. Now, on the off chance that you're listening and that you're not my target audience, I'm sorry Man of Steel wasn't your cup of tea. If you can approach it with an open heart and an open mind, hopefully this podcast can help you appreciate it more. Then, as we approach the feast of the next five years, while you might find some things challenging to your tastes, you might also acquire a taste for certain fare or find that exciting something that transforms your palate and becomes your new favorite food. There's value in the familiar, but also adventure and excitement in exploration. Be adventurous. Have hope. Have faith. Be excited with proper expectations. I've got my preferences, tastes, and quirks too, so not everything is going to be my ideal or to my liking. But the longer the buffet goes, the more choices and options will appear, the richer the menu, and the more likely that something will come along and just totally hit the spot. It may take a little patience, but if you look at something like Smallville, which attempted to, on several fronts, stay grounded, given time to grow and a faithful audience, the show transformed into something with a Justice League and a Justice Society and appearances from Blue Beetle to Zatanna. Bruce Timm's animated universe grew from a retro-styled episodic program to one so large that watching elongated man groan and moan to Booster Gold in my living room was actually a reality. Rather than resenting the next decade of fandom, why not cheer for the potential and the possibility that it represents. You can be the change that you want to see in the world. A saying often misattributed to Gandhi, according to a 2011 New York Times article, but that's neither here nor there. Circumstances may be out of your control, but your attitude in approaching it is in your hands. I'd rather spend the next few years hopeful and happy than bitter, fearful, and disgruntled. Of course, that's up to you. Free will, a choice, a theme forwarded by Man of Steel. Okay, I have no idea where all of that came from. Honestly, I think I'm a little loopy from low blood sugar. I was totally going to talk about Jor-El and Jonathan as lawbreakers, but instead I'm talking about goodwill over good food. I think I need to eat. (laughs) And if I haven't fallen into a food coma, we'll come back and tackle some of the mailbag. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. The Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring Superman and Batman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast. The DC Comics Presents Show. From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. It's Superman. The Schuster Herald Podcast. The Carousel Podcast. Superman Forever Radio. Superman Lives. Up, Up, and Away. Cadmus to Crisis, a Superboy podcast. 
the Amateur Steel, a John Henry Allen's podcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, Russell Brad, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Sam Rizzo, Danny Saab, Bob Fisher, Chris Moe, Mario Benessi, Drew Wintermeyer, David Byer, Matthew Epps. I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Okay, we're back. Uh, man, I wonder how much editing I'm going to have to do to cut out my stomach growling. <laughs> well, hopefully none of it was picked up. And if it is, I apologize. Um, we've run long, so I'm only going to tackle, uh, let's say, five mailbag questions. Let's see. First, we have uh, Theo, who is responding to the magic weakness from the last episode. Theo suggests an interesting theory that Superman's powers don't have to have sentience and that Superman's magical allergy may be psychosomatic, as may happen in real life with certain allergies. In other words, it's all in Superman's head and he's letting himself get hurt more than normal. I think that's a really clever way to reconcile some instances of when Superman gets harmed by magical things, but I don't think it's comprehensive enough to cover all cases. Many times Superman doesn't even know that the attack is magical until feeling the hit. Additionally, this requires that Superman can make himself vulnerable, which is an idea that Engel floated back in episode 9, but remember that was in the context of Man of Steel, where we don't know for certain how Superman's durability works. I'm fairly confident that for the general tradition of Superman, he can't turn his durability on and off like a light switch. Still, the idea of a psychosomatic vulnerability is an interesting way to add an element of intelligence or variable outcomes to something that would otherwise be deterministic or systematic. Of course, with magic in the mix, it seems easier to just put that on the spell rather than to alter Superman's powers across the board. But still, a very interesting idea. Um, Maggie has two questions. First, she wants to know if there will be an Understanding Martha episode. And uh, we will definitely talk about all the women of Man of Steel. But I don't think we need an exhaustive analysis of Martha, only because people have fewer questions about her character. There are more controversies surrounding Jonathan's choices, which is why it's going to take multiple episodes to answer the questions about his actions. But I think few people find fault with Martha. The only fault that I think I've ever heard is that maybe she's a little underwritten, but that's pretty much the norm for this film. Everyone's dialogue is on the light side. So we'll explore Martha, definitely, but I don't think we need to explore it as much as we will have to explore Jonathan. Additionally, as they were a married couple and they parented Clark as a team, to a certain extent, any analysis of Jonathan is also examining Martha, at least in the capacity and to the extent that she agreed with Jonathan. You'll note that Martha often says, we, and speaks on Jonathan's behalf, but we'll definitely get there eventually, just not yet. <laughs> Uh, Maggie's second question is more of a comment. She says she listened to all the rationales and she still doesn't buy Wonder Woman wearing wedges. You know, that's okay. <laughs> I did my best to help you suspend your disbelief 
and suggest that we might hope for alternative footwear under different circumstances or to accept it as a traditional affectation, but you don't have to be convinced. That's totally okay. Everyone has their own hang-ups, areas of expertise, and points where it's going to be harder to suspend that disbelief. I might notice legal issues that most of the audience doesn't, and I know women who've actually worn high heels are going to have a much more tangible experience than my mere abstractions. And it would be as trite of me to say, watch a video of women running or playing sports in heels for people to point to an episode of Law & Order as legal precedent to me. So it's completely fine to feel that way. I totally understand it. And thanks for the commentary and insight, Maggie. Uh, Next, we have Rebecca Johnson, co-host of Supergirl Radio Podcast, which I encourage you to check out, has a great comment about Clark possibly using super speed to get from the Debbie Sue to the oil rig. I think that's probably right, that Clark had to swim to the rig superhumanly fast. But I'm going to split hairs and assume that he did this with his strength powers rather than his yet-to-be-discovered speed powers. Back in episode 4, we talked about how Superman's strength doesn't come from him moving his mass super fast to balance out Newton's second law. Rather, he just gets this extra value or force vector out of his actions as if he were a supermassive object. So, to keep the swim from the oil rig consistent with my theory, I'd suggest that every swimming stroke that Clark makes, he gets superhuman value out of it. Extra thrust that the mere motion of his arms and legs could not have generated. Contrast this against swimming with super speed, that would be more like the scene from The Incredibles, where the thrust comes from ordinary swimming strokes or kicking, but repeated at incredible speed to get more thrust in the same amount of time. We'll definitely revisit the topic of super speed when we talk about Ellesmere, but it's a great point. I should have covered it, and I'll definitely bring it up again. Finally, we have Thomas, who writes in about the theory I floated in episode 14 about Batman retrofitting spaceship parts to withstand Superman-level strikes. He says he wants Batman to be Batman, not Iron Man, and he wants him to mainly fight crime and not aliens. Well, thanks for writing in, Thomas. I definitely agree that a Bruce Wayne wearing power armor all the time isn't traditional, but it also isn't unusual under exceptional circumstances, and his first face-off with Superman might be such a circumstance. But I also want to clarify that I was not promoting that outcome, but merely posing it as a thought experiment of how Batman might survive a fight with Superman. Surely, tech will be a part of it, but I believe that Batman's survival would more likely come from leveraging Superman's interests, like we talked about in Episode 7. For example, let's say that Batman has a vital piece of time-sensitive information in his head that he alone knows. Just for illustration's sake, let's say a code to disarming a bomb set to harm Lois. Under conditions like those, Superman has a powerful incentive to defeat Batman, but he also can't risk killing him or knocking him out in a way that time runs out while trying to revive Batman from unconsciousness. So in a fight like that, Superman's own interests hold him back, allowing Batman to stay conscious and in the fight. Of course, Superman only needs Batman to talk, so maybe there's pressure to threaten more serious bodily injury. Again, it's just a thought experiment, not a prediction or an investment, just an exercise in imagination. And if you've got ideas that you want to share, be sure to send them in. Okay, I just want to give thanks to um, Johnny B and Sock Heaven for their kind iTunes reviews. You guys are awesome. I don't do it for the reviews, but to get the word out that Man of Steel was a great start to the DCCU, and the reviews help other DCCU fans find the podcast and know that they're not crazy for enjoying Man of Steel. Thanks to all the people commenting 
commenting on the blog and the YouTube channel. It's great encouragement and really motivating. Thank you. And last but not least, thank you to you. Yes, you for listening. Really, there's so much great content out there and I'm humbled and grateful that you have elected to listen to what I made for you. You're awesome. Thank you. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I appreciate you listening. That's all the time I have to record for now. If you haven't already subscribed to the YouTube channel, there are new videos tackling more Man of Steel myths for you to like and share. I really do just love discussing this stuff and hope you'll join us at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you've got a question you want answered or insight that you want to share, or commentary to make, you can post in the comments for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at mosaic at manofsteelanswers.com. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your DC Cinematic Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son. Answer, son.